You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, I'm Eric Barton, and I get the pastor of the downtown campus here at Bethel, and I'm delighted that you're here. I want to say also add my greeting to Mike's and to Matt's and say we are delighted that you're here. And we believe that God in his sovereignty has directed your steps divinely to be in this place this morning, which means he has a word for you. And the text that you've just read is an absolutely profound text. And so I want to do my best, as I can, to to unpack it with us. So let me start off by saying this. There are only two religions in the world, ever. In the history of humankind, there have really ever only been two religions. One, what you must do. Two, what Christ has done. Every system of religion ever falls into one of those two categories. Every other system of thinking is, I have to do such and such to have right standing before God. That is every other system of human religion in existence. Or there is Christianity, which focuses on that which has been done by somebody else for you. So whatever else you might be thinking about right now, whatever else might be a distraction to you, I'm going to request, I'm going to beseech you, therefore, brethren and sistren, to focus your hearts and your minds on that which I just said, that everybody is dealing with one of those two systems of religion. Really and truly, the word religion does not actually occur that often in Scripture. So what is religion? Religion is simply the controlling narrative of one's life. And so there are no irreligious people. Everybody has some narrative by which they live their lives. And every system of religion in the world ever, except one, focuses on what you have to do. Now, our Bibles tell us that there is an enemy, that he is real, and that he is strong. And his primary purpose is to invert, to thwart, or to prevent God's plan his purpose, and his people. It's always what he's about. He's always trying to invert, to prohibit, or to thwart, or reverse God's plan, his purpose, and his people. So how does he do that? How does this enemy that is real, that is actually working in the world, how does he try to oppose God? Well, most often the way he does that is by getting people to focus on themselves and not on God, on his goodness, his glory, and his grace. And so What I'm saying is that, yes, our our enemy energizes any system of thinking, any controlling narrative that occupies and uses this tagline. If it's to be, it's up to me. That is absolutely a system of thinking, a controlling narrative that is energized by our enemy. That we have to do anything. A man named Michael Horton wrote this a while back. He said, what would it look like? What would things be like if Satan actually took over a city? If Satan was in charge of a city, what would it look like? He says, the first frames in our imaginative slideshow probably depict mayhem on a massive scale, crime and looting, 
widespread violence, deviant sexualities, pornography in every vending machine, churches closed down, and worshipers dragged off to city hall. But over a century ago, or half a century ago, a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse, who's pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Street Presbyterian Church, gave his CBS radio audience a different picture of what it would look like if Satan took control of a town in America. He said that all of the bars and all the pool halls would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine streets and sidewalks would be occupied by tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The kids would answer, yes, sir, no, ma'am. And the churches would be full on Sunday where Christ is not preached. That, was, that would be what it would look like if Satan were to take over. Because he would love nothing more than a system of godlessness that looked really good, that made people feel like they were getting somewhere, where in reality they were getting nowhere. All of that controlling narrative that says we have to do, we have to have, that is the basis and the essence of idolatry. It's idolatry. Now that's a word that doesn't come up a whole lot anymore, but it really should. Every other form of human religion, apart from Christianity, focuses on my effort. But the problem is, everybody that's ever existed, ever, recognizes that this world is broken and messed up. Things go wrong, or at least they don't typically go how we want them to go. If you've ever tried to do a do-it-yourself project, you know that this is a fallen world. Things don't work out the way they're supposed to go. And yet at the same time, everybody has a set of things that they really want and they really need. You know, things like health and safety and security and love and acceptance and pleasure and wealth and prosperity. So what happens when those things that I need and I think that I want, what happens when those things come into conflict with a fallen world where everything is broken and everything is hard? Well, what happens what happens when the things that you want are thwarted even though you're doing your best? Well, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, what people have done is to set up patterns of performance to make sure we get what we want. If that's the thing that I want, that's the thing that I need, then this is what I will do to make sure that I get it. And we construct patterns of performance. All of those good things, health and safety and security and love and acceptance and pleasure, all of those good things suddenly become what's best to us. And we will do whatever it takes to receive them, to achieve them. And there, right there, they become idols. Good things elevated to be the best thing. That, those patterns of performance absolutely determine and dictate our attitude and our action. And that is slavery and bondage when a thing controls me. If what I need and desire most is security, then I will do whatever it takes to get it, then that thing has now become an idol that controls me. I am in bondage, I am in slavery to try to do whatever it takes to achieve security or acceptance or fame, notoriety, recognition, pleasure, success, you name it. That thing becomes that which determines my attitude, my action, and so it enslaves me. And that is a one-ingredient recipe for joylessness. To be controlled by any other thing is a one-ingredient recipe for joylessness. But the gospel is good news that brings great joy. 
And it reveals to us our big idea for the morning, that practicing a pattern of performance is idolatry. Practicing a pattern of performance is idolatry. That, that summary of what it would look like if Satan really took over town, for some of us it sounded pretty good. Like, oh, that's, that's the good old days. Andy Griffith, Aunt B, pot pies. Mm. But if we're doing all of those things as a way to get what we want, then it is a pattern of performance. It is idolatry. Let me say it even more strongly. The opposite of the gospel is idolatry. There are only two religions in the world, what you must do and what Christ has done. So we're in the book of Galatians, and this passage that we read this morning is difficult, tricky, and challenging, but it is the Apostle Paul writing to a group of churches in Galatia, south-central Turkey, that is addressing the very thing that I just described. And so it is extremely important and pertinent, I think, for all of us. The book of Galatians is all about Christian liberty, freedom in Christ. And Paul will say over and over again through six chapters, don't be fooled. Don't let anybody else give you any other gospel because there is no other gospel. My gospel, Paul says, is God's gospel. What I am telling you are the very words of God. So do not be fooled. The gospel, the good news, the awesome announcement, the great story of what God has done in Christ to redeem, to buy back man to himself and to one another. Only two forms of religion in the world ever what you have to do, and what Christ has done. This is the glory of the gospel. So now, let me try to unpack these verses as briefly as I can. Beginning chapter 4 in verse 8. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, that word know there is the word oida. It's, uh, it's sort of just to be aware of, to be uh, familiar with, to recognize from a distance. There was a time when these people in Galatia, these pagan Greek culture citizens, they were aware that a God existed, but they didn't know anything about this God. And in that lifestyle in which they lived, formerly, he says in verse 8, you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. There were these organizing principles. There were these things that you lived your life by, and you were enslaved by them. There were things that you wanted, things that you needed, and so you organized your life in a pattern of performance to try and get them. And I'll just tell you, I think this is extremely pertinent and relevant in our world today. I know of so many people that have received the gospel because they had, if you'll allow this, the hell scared out of them. Someone told them, hey, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? And they went, well, I'd be dead, so no. Well, if you don't know Jesus, you're going to burn in hell for all eternity, and there will be horrible things happening to your body for the rest of... Yeah. I'll say anything. I'll do anything. I'll accept anything. Just don't... I don't want to go that place. And so many people, that has been the sum total of their Christian experience. Someone, a well-meaning Christian worker, leader, teacher said, hey, you don't want to go to hell when you die. And they said, well, of course not. And so they took a knee, said a prayer, and then for the rest of their life, they walked around saying, well, at least I'm not going to go to hell one day, but I got to do my best to slug it out and grin and bear it in a hard, broken world until I'm dead. And you can just imagine how much fun those people are to be around. In fact, I was one of those people. And yet I realized that that was a joyless existence, and I wanted me some joy. And so here's what I did. 
maybe you can relate, I went out looking for joy in any other place that I could get it. And I always found it fleeting, and it always failed me. Until finally, by God's grace, I circled back and saw that, oh no, the gospel is good news in this life now. It is for freedom in this life now. It is not merely about me getting out of hell and going to hell one day. It is about the kingdom of God made fully present, manifest, and known in me as I walk, live, and breathe today. And that is joy. Paul uses some really, really strange and strong language here. And these first couple verses, verses 8 and 9, in fact, it's so strong and so surprising that many translators of the Bible can't quite bring themselves to translate what it actually says because it is so shocking. I'll explain that here in just a minute. He says that when you return to a former way of life where you are living according to a pattern of performance, even though you've played your get-out-of-hell-free card, it's no different from actually being lost because you are enslaved to a principle of this world. You are enslaved by a thing that's not actually a God at all. It's bondage. And so this is what he's going to say in verse 9. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, Paul actually nuances his own words. He says, now that you've come to know, but he changes verbs. It's not know as in oida, as in being aware of. Now it's now that you gnosko God. This is experiential personal, intimate familiarity. This is the verb that I confess as a kid always used to make me laugh. And when I say as a kid, I mean, you know, 30 minutes ago. (laughs) This is the biblical verb for physical marital relations. In Hebrew, it's yada. In Greek, it's gnosko. And it said that Adam knew his wife. (laughs) Well, it's the same verb. Paul says, now that you have experiential knowledge of God. You know him. You have, you have seen him. But even more than that, he's not correcting himself. He's saying what is primary. This is deeply important fundamentally for us as a species. We are known by God. He knows us, not about us. He knows us and accepts us anyway. That is the glory of grace. The scandal of grace is that God sees me with all of my error, all of my fallenness, all of my scar tissue, and he accepts me anyway. I am known by God. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be known by God, to be accepted by God, and recognize and realize that I lack no other good thing because I have acceptance in him. I don't have to try and achieve notoriety or acceptance because I have it in him. That's what it means to be a Christian. I am known and accepted by God. He says in verse 9, rather you have been known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? This is absolutely packed with meaning. How can you revert to a pattern of performance? What is Paul talking about? Well, Paul's writing to a group of people in Galatia who lived previously in a system of pagan idolatry. Just like today, those people in a Greek context had things they wanted and needed. They wanted safety. They wanted security. They wanted health, wealth, acceptance, love, pleasure, bounty, prosperity. They wanted all the same things. And so what would they do? Well, they had a God that was assigned to every one of those things. 
You were a grower of wine. You invoked the god Bacchus, the god of wine. If you wanted uh, physical love and sexuality and sensuality, you invoked Aphrodite, or the Roman version was Venus. Or if you were a, a, a maritime voyager, a sailor, you sacrificed to the god Poseidon or Neptune. Or if you wanted crops to be bountiful and fertile, you sacrificed to Artemis or Diana. And you did all of these things you had to perform to get those gods to do something for you, but those gods could be ornery and cantankerous. Those are the elementary principles. That word is so difficult to translate. It's stoicheia. That's how you organized your life around that pattern of performance of these elementary principles, these spirit foundations. And there was a God for everything. And so you had to obligate yourself, I got to do this, or Poseidon will get mad and sink my ship, or I got to do this, or Aphrodite will get mad and I won't be able to have any physical pleasure, or I got to do this, or I won't have any wine, or I got to do this, or he won't bless my crops. And you were enslaved to these things, which are really not gods at all. Those good things, health, prosperity, security, children, all those things are good, but people have always had a tendency to elevate them to the best thing, and now I will do whatever it takes to get it, and that puts me in bondage. And Paul says, you were just like that previously, but then I came and preached the gospel to you, and I released you by the preaching of God's word from all of those chains, all those bonds and shackles, and you had joy. Why would you now try to, and this is where it gets so shocking, so astonishing. Paul says, if you now try to revert to the law of Moses, it is no different than living according to the pagan gods of the Greek pantheon. If you try to go back and practice a pattern of performance by trying to fulfill the law of Moses, it is no different than going back and living like you did. And when they were under Greek culture, they were practicing normatively all sorts of rampant debauchery, all sorts of fits of rage and sexual depravity and immorality and drunkenness and rage, all of these things. That was their norm, but they still obligated themselves to all these false gods. They elevated these things to deities, which they were not, which then become demons, which then become directors of their lives. And Paul says, if you now try to bring back the law of Moses, you're doing the exact same thing. Why? That's shocking. How can Paul say that? Wasn't the law of God good? Wasn't the law given to Moses good? Yes. But it has been fulfilled. And so if you try to revert to a pattern of moralism, of behavior modification, according to the law of Moses, what you're saying is, what Jesus did on the cross was not enough. I have to help him out by being a certain way, by doing a certain thing. And you find yourself adding to the gospel, which always subtracts from it. Hear that again. Anytime we try to add to the gospel, we are subtracting from it. Paul says, how? How can you revert back to a pattern of performance? It doesn't matter if it's Aphrodite and Artemis or if it's the law of Moses. It is a pattern of performance and it is idolatry and it has stolen your joy. Those principles, those, those ideas that you can do a thing and get a thing, he says those principles, those spirits are worthless and weak. They're weak because they cannot save. They cannot bring us into right standing with the one true God. They have no power to do that. They're worthless, literally patakos, this word that means dirt poor. They have no value whatsoever. They might for a season feel good and seem like they're doing something, but they have absolutely zero value. They are worthless. They're weak 
and they're worthless. Why in the world would you turn back to that? Because remember, there are only two religions in the world, what you must do and what Christ has done. And practicing a pattern of performance is idolatry. Paul continues now in verse 10. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Apparently, Paul comes to these churches in Galatia and he preaches the gospel, the good news of what God has done to redeem man to himself and to one another. And they received it with joy. They said, wow, we are accepted. We don't have to try to do. We don't have to have a pattern of performance. Paul says, no. And they are exceedingly joyful. And then they, Paul leaves and soon enough, some of these other people come in, these false teachers, these guys called the Judaizers. Now, they didn't have name tags that said, hello, my name is Bill the Judaizer. Didn't say that. They looked like everybody else. They talked pretty much like everybody else. They drove Buicks. They lived in the suburbs. They shopped at Target. They did everything. But they began to add to the gospel. But they were pretty clever, these Judaizers. They didn't just show up and say, hi, my name is Bill. We're going to circumcise you. Be still. That's a, that's a bad visitor to your church. That guy shows up. No, they got together, these Judaizers, and they started saying things like, hey, we hear that Paul came and preached the gospel, and you guys are believers. Yep, that's right. Well, that's awesome, but Paul didn't give you the whole story. There's actually more to it. You see, we come from Jerusalem. Paul was never really one of us in Jerusalem. He was kind of a, he's kind of a weird dude from the fringes, but, but we come from Jerusalem. We want to help you. You have believed in Christ, and that's good, but it's also, you have to do a bunch of stuff. You know, but, it's, but it's all cool. It's all fun. You, you got to have these parties six times a year. You get to go to these festivals. You got to have the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Weeks. You got to have all these, and it's cool. And you got to observe Passover, and you got to observe the Day of Atonement. So, oh, well, okay. Yeah, that, that's what God wants is for you to do some stuff and then he'll bless you and you'll have right standing before God. And they said, oh, oh, okay. Oh, and by the way, yeah, also, um, you, you gotta not eat certain things and you have to make sure you only eat these things. Oh, okay. And, and, and you don't wanna mix your fabrics. When you're like wearing parachute pants, never wear flannel. Don't ever, don't ever do that. You, you gotta keep your fabrics very pristine, just linen. Don't mix it with anything else. Oh, okay. Wow, it's, boy, it's starting to get kind of, kind of tight, like we have to remember a whole bunch of stuff. They said, yeah, 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 but it's worth it. God's going to be happy with you. He'll give you what you want. Um, oh, and, and then there's this thing, you, you got to be circumcised. They said, we got to what? Yeah, yeah, you've also got to be circumcised. Mm, okay, okay, that's weird, but yeah, no, just trust us. It's going to be fine. You got to do that, and then God will be happy. And Paul says, what are you doing? What are you reverting back to that pattern of performance? It was always temporary. It has expired. Now, in our day, we would not probably say that you, you know, can't eat that, that you have to celebrate this, but I still hear people say things like, well, you have to not eat certain things, not do certain things. You have to be baptized in water and be held under until you bubble. You have to do all of these things. You have to be a member. You have to tithe. You have to observe Lord's Supper so that God will bless you and be happy with you. No, that's absolutely not the case. In fact, Paul goes on to say in Colossians 2, verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Apparently, it wasn't just in Galatia. It was farther west than Colossia. People were being told that they had to observe the Sabbath. Now, this is interesting. Of all the Ten Commandments, the only one that is not repeated in the New Testament is the Sabbath. 
Now, should you take a season of rest? Absolutely, I'm sure there's wisdom in that. But it is not a command that you have to observe to earn right standing before God. You want to take a Sabbath? Great. But may we never impose on people that you have to have a formal 24-hour period of, of rest so that God will be happy with you so that you can get the stuff that you want because that's idolatry. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was not just weekly, that you get to take one day a week off. It was also every seven years, you take an entire year off. And every 50 years, you take two years off. I've never heard anybody in church that says you have to have a Sabbath prescribed the seven year, every year off, every year off, every seven years, you get a year off as well. I've never heard anyone say that because that's not real. Should you rest? Absolutely. But it is not a thing that gives us any better standing with God. So that's Paul's prayer. I feel like I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. Now, if you're a parent, you know exactly how this feels. Like I have poured into you for 18 years. What is, what, why are you doing those things that you used to do when you were seven? What are you doing? What are you thinking? This is how Paul feels about his people. So that's sort of the theological unpacking, these verses 8 through 11. Now, Paul's going to get really practical and really applicational. In verses 12 through 20, he's going to talk about leadership in church. Now, this, I got to confess, I got to go ahead and get this out. This is incredibly awkward for me to have to talk about. Um, what we do at Bethel is we select a book in the Bible and we preach straight through it, which is a great thing. That means we preach every passage, every verse in an entire book of Scripture. We're going through Galatians, and that means that we've now arrived at the middle of Galatians chapter 4, which is really awkward because it's Paul essentially telling the church what it means to be a good pastor. And so now I get to preach because I'm a pastor about what it means to be a, a good pastor. It's so awkward. It's so icky. I've been uncomfortable about this for many, many, many days, but you know what, it's sort of above my pay grade to go, well, that's just kind of awkward. We're not going to talk about it. Any good thing that I say is going to sound like I'm being self-congratulatory, and I'm not. Any bad thing that I say might come across that I'm uh, talking about other pastors or ministers or elders or leaders that you know, and I'm not. But usually what this means is anytime a preacher gets to preach on being a pastor, it's sort of this real-time live scorecard where you get to evaluate me as I'm talking about it, which feels completely awesome, which usually means I get to go home in a season of self-loathing, eat nachos, and sleep for five hours. So just, yes, that's coming, but I, but I just had to let you know this is what we're about to do. We're going to talk about what it means to be a pastor in a church, and Paul's going to talk about this very, very specifically. It's a central passage for what it means to be a leader in a Christian context. He says in verse 12, brothers, so he softens his tone. What has happened to you? He called them idiots, foolish Galatians. Now he's going to again call them brothers because he's one of them and he loves them. Brothers, I entreat you. I beg you. I beseech you. Become as I am for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. He uses this interesting imperative here, become. It's genesthe. It's not do or go accomplish or achieve. It's simply become. Become like I am. There's a sense in which we are to deliberately receive that which God wants to do because God is in the transformation business. But when we try to help him out, by helping him in our transformation business, we frequently do all sorts 
of bad things, and we realize that there's nothing we can do to transform ourselves. And so Paul begs them to follow his example. Become like I am. What does that mean? One who understands the righteousness, the holiness, the glory, the grace of God. Because I have become like you. I went into your setting. I went into your churches or to your cities and planted churches. I ate bacon with you. I wore leather pants. Oh yeah, the tight black ones. I did it. You were wearing leather pants. I put on leather pants. I would never have done that before. But I became like you and you have become like me. What does that mean? Well, Paul was the poster child for... Uh, following the rules. He was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the most moral person ever. And he says, I entered into your context. I recognized finally that salvation was by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, just like you. I laid aside my pattern of performance. I shucked off the chains of the legal code. I'm free of it, just like you did. And now I'm asking you to become like me that still lives that way. I have become among you, and I want you to become as I am, one who still lives apart from the pattern of performance. He begs them to follow his example. And so Paul has become like them. He's asking them to become like him. By the way, this is good Christian leadership. This is good pastoring. This is good eldering, good deaconing, good volunteer minister, good volunteer leadering. We get in with the people. We get inside their heads and hearts and we feel what they feel, we think what they think, and we teach what God says. That's what Paul has done. Verse 13 and 14, he continues. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. That's a weird statement. You know it's because I had a little touch of something that I was here preaching to you to begin with. Oh, that's why you were there, Paul? Yeah, that's right. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. We have to remember, we get a little extra help from Luke in the book of Acts that Paul shows up in Galatia on his first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14. He's trying to go west to the province of Asia. That's where Ephesus is in western Turkey. But they stop at one port called Pamphylia on the south coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And it's famous for its uh, lowland swamps uh, and malaria because that's just what happens in low-lying, swampy areas. It's got mosquitoes that are the size of pterodactyls, and they carry malaria. And so Paul has to go due north, inland, up over the Taurus Mountains, which were full of bandits. It's very rugged, hard terrain, but he has to because he needs a higher climate, and he needs higher elevation and drier, uh, drier air. And apparently when he walks in, uh, probably immediately following his conversion, Paul had always struggled with this thing called ophthalmia, we think. It's all we can guess. We don't know for sure. We conjecture, but we think. He had an eye disease. Yeah. Uh, Paul says at the end of Galatians, you see with what big letters I am writing, because it was hard for him to see, and so he wrote at the end of the letter of Galatians in his own hand. It was hard for him to see with big, big letters. In Acts 22, he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, before these 71 members, and as he begins to speak, he rebukes the high priest and calls him a hypocrite. And they go, wow, you speak to the high priest this way? And Paul goes, oh, sorry, I didn't know that was him because he was blind as a hammer. He couldn't see anything. Now, he says that it was because of a bodily ailment. This group of churches was sort of created accidentally on the backswing. It wasn't what Paul had in mind, but it is what God had in mind. 
God allowed his bodily ailment, most likely malaria, and his ophthalmia to take him north into the interior to plant these churches. And they received him with joy. They loved hearing him preach and teach. This must have absolutely shocked and astonished Paul because if, in fact, he had ophthalmia, it's disgusting. We know from a second century inscription from the town of Lystra, which is one of the cities in Galatia, that Paul is described physically. He was short, squatty, bow-legged, big-nosed, unibrow, and bald-headed. And obviously also had this red-eye oozing pus thing happening. Mmm! Put him on your stationery for your church. No, he was not pleasant to be around this Paul. And yet they received him. What does it say? as if an angel of God had shown up. That's how much joy they had at Paul's preaching. In fact, as though it was Christ Jesus. This is where it gets weird and icky. This is what a pastor does. A pastor brings people together and says, hey, y'all, this is what God says. This is what God wants to say to us. They received Paul as if it was Jesus himself there because in a sense, it was, and it is. Now, I know that I'm not Jesus and that Paul is not Jesus, and yet the message that we teach in God's spirit, among God's people, from God's word, is what Jesus wants communicated and conveyed. And there was a time when they received him with such joy because he freed, him, he freed them from the bondage of their idolatry. So verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness, your, your joyfulness, your happiness, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Probably just to not have to look at his eyes anymore. Here, take mine, please. That way I'll be blind and you won't have that thing anymore. They had so much joy for Paul and his pastoral leadership that he was actually, uh, he would have been the recipient of their eyes if they could have done it. That's how much joy and happiness they had because of his preaching of the good news. It was not a burden to them, which must have shocked Paul. He must have thought at first, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm here. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And they said, no, tell us more. We don't mind. We love you. Please tell us more. But now they're joyless and it's faded. Why? Why, Paul says, what has happened? Because they took their eyes off Jesus and started listening to the Judaizers, and they prescribed a whole lot of stuff that they had to do. They prescribed a pattern of performance. Paul says, verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They get mad at Paul. They no longer like him or love him. They are disaffected from Paul. They no longer have affection for him. And so because of that, they question his message. And so because of that, there's a spirit of distrust. And because of that, this church begins to implode and corrode. Let me just say, trust is one of the most precious commodities that pastors and elders and deacons and leaders have in a church. And when that begins to go away, the church begins to completely collapse. And so we guard that very, very carefully. Paul says, what has happened? Why are you mad at me for only now telling you the truth? Sometimes in leadership, that's what we have to do. Isaiah 52, 7 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul says, my feet were the only thing about me that was beautiful. Everything else was oozing and nasty. But you loved me anyway. Now, why are you mad at me for simply telling you the good news? Verse 17, they make much of you 
Uh, now he's talking about the Judaizers, these people that are probably sitting in the churches when this letter was being read aloud. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. These people are trying to win your favor. They're buttering you up. They're trying to tell you nice things and tickle your ears so that you will not listen to me anymore. This is what always what false teachers do. Because they are powerless to win any converts of their own, they will always go after somebody else's disciples. That's what these Judaizers were doing. Hey, listen, you heard from Paul, but now we tell you. Listen to us. Follow our instruction. And Paul tells the churches of Galatia, they're just buttering you up. They're trying to shut me out to get something from you so that you will sponsor them, so that you will scratch their back, so that you will give them patronage and pay their way. That's all they're after. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. It's good to have positive reinforcement, good to have encouragement. You want your pastor or elders or deacons or volunteer ministry leaders to encourage you, to tell you what you're doing well. Yes, for the right reason but never to try to get something from you, Paul says. And not only when I am present with you. Oh, he says, verse 19, my little children. This is the only time in 13 epistles that Paul uses this expression. The only time he calls them, not idiots and fools, he's then moved to brothers, now he calls them my little children. And then he does something really bizarre. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Paul equates himself to a pregnant woman, that's weird, who has these abdominal pains. Why? Because he views them as his children. If any of you have children, you know what this means. You know what this is like. When you have children, everything changes. You give them your heart. You give them your heart. And from then on, your heart is bound up with them. It is impossible for you to be sincerely, legitimately happy and joyful if they are suffering. If they are joyless and suffering and miserable, you will be too. Why? Because they are your children and you have given them your heart. This is what Paul says. This is good pastoring. My little children, I have given you my heart and you are joyless. I know this about you now and my heart is breaking for you. This is good pastoral leadership, affiliating so much with people that our hearts go out to them when they revert to a pattern and a practice of performance. We're heartbroken. We have abdominal pains. Paul equates himself to a mother in childbirth. And he says, again, because the first time he was with them, he went through abdominal pains as he led them through conversion to lay aside their idols and their patterns of practice. He says, and now I'm feeling that again. No, I'm not trying to save you again. I'm trying to rescue you from joylessness and bondage. Dear sweet people who are here this morning, I am racked to rescue you from bondage of your pattern of performance. If at all I can, until, he says in verse 19, until Christ is formed in you. The word is until Christ is morpho, until Christ is fully manifest, until you are consistently characterized by the character of Christ himself. And that will be a day of joyfulness in you. That's how I'm loving you, leading you, guiding you, guarding you, until you are characterized by the character of Christ in you. This is what good pastoral leadership is. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed. I, I don't know what to think is the literal word. I, I'm completely baffled. And I know that what I'm writing on paper 
has a harsher tone than I intend. You know how this goes when you write someone an email. For those of you who are old enough to remember email, or you text, or you Snapchat, or you Instagram, or whatever it is that you do now, sometimes in print it can come across harder than you intend. Paul says, I wish I could be with you, to love you, and to shake you, and to tell you the hard things that need to be said. No church that reverts to, a re- to religion and regulation will be a joyful people. And that is always painful for a pastor to see. Practicing a pattern of performance is idolatry. So very quickly, let me just try to apply this if I can. Four quick implications or applications that I hope at least one, if not all of these, will immediately impact all of us in some way. The first is this. I take it right from the text. We are all open to regression, every single one of us. The churches in Galatia had heard the good news, the awesome announcement, the great story of the gospel. And before too long, they reverted. They began to listen to other things, and they began to try to add to the gospel, which is always subtraction. And all of us are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love and that loves us. It happens very frequently. It happens subtly, but it happens to all of us. The instant we take our eyes off Jesus and we start focusing on what we can do, we are in regression and reverting back to weak and worthless principles. We all do it. We all do it. We start thinking, well, you know, I have to be moral. I have to do these things. I better not do that or else. I better not do that or else. Or I had better do this, this, this so that I will get, get, get. And that is idolatry and it is joylessness and it is a bondage. It is a chain. And all of us do it. In fact, it's more than that. It is actually sin, which leads me to our second point. Sin is not believing God. That's really the simplest definition I can give you. Romans 14.23 says that sin is anything done apart from faith. Sin is not believing God. God says, I know you. I accept you. I love you. Stop striving. There's nothing else you need to do For my love, you have my favor. You have my pleasure. I love you. I know you. Quit trying to earn it. You have it. You're my son. You are my daughter. But anytime we sin, listen, anytime we sin, it's because at some level, in some way, we don't believe God. I I need pleasure. I I need security. I need wealth, prosperity, acceptance, fame, notoriety, whatever it might be. And so I'm going to go and get it for myself. That is an expression and an exercise in sin. God says, I withhold no good and perfect thing from those whom I love. Anytime we break commandments three through 10, it's because we've broken one and two. Let me explain. The 10 commandments, the first one goes like this. I'm God, you don't get another one. Second commandment, don't even make anything that looks like me because that's an idol. Even if it's supposed to look like me, don't. Because I am God, you don't get another. Don't make anything that looks like me, including your behavior and your moral behavior, your moralism and your, your, your persistence in trying to be good. And any time that we break the rest of the 10, three through 10, it's because we have already broken one and two. We've allowed God to be removed and for something else to take its place. And when we do that, We put something else in God's place and then we chase after it. We obligate ourselves to it. We're enslaved by it and we are joyless. And then we become addicted to that spiral that just goes down and down and down as that attempt never fully satisfies. 
but the gospel would, re- would remove us from that. Say, no, we are known, we are accepted. And so, it leads me to my third point. It's open season on idols. This passage presents us with an opportunity to take a hard and an essential, important look at our lives and ask some hard questions. What are the good things that have become the best things? What are the good things? Health, wealth, safety, security, recognition, acceptance. What are those good things that I have elevated to be the best things? And so I challenge you to ask the hard questions. I, oh, I'm going to do it. I double dog dare you to ask your spouse, what are the good things that you have made the best things that you are organizing your life around? That has become your religion, that pattern of performance, and it is slavery. Ask your friends, ask your life group members, ask your neighbors, ask your kids. They probably know too. What are those things? This past week, I had the opportunity to go out to West Texas. I went turkey hunting. Kind of. Uh, I I never actually pulled my shotgun out of the truck. Uh, And so I never fired a shot. Uh, I decided it would be easier to just let all the other guys roll around in the chiggers and I would sit on the porch and drink coffee, which is precisely what I did. And so do you know how many turkeys I killed? Zero. Not a one. Even though it's open season on turkey, I never fired a shot. Well, it's open season on idols. And if you never go hunting for them, You will never lay them over. You won't. And you will continue to be in bondage in them. It's an elementary principle. All of us revert back to them. It's open season on those idols. Go hunting for them. What are the good things that you have elevated to be the best thing that you have put on the throne of your life? And finally, the fourth point, Christian leadership matters. Listen, again, this is awkward and icky for me to say this, but these are hard passages And I am not better than anybody else in this room. I don't have more of the spirit than anybody else in this room. But passages such as these are so vital, so crucial. And we need people who have spent weeks on a text like this to help us unpack it and understand it. It's an astonishing passage when Paul equates the law of Moses with Greek paganism. And sometimes all of us need help walking through that. Christian leadership matters. And... All of us need somebody in our lives who is just a little bit further down the path exploring and enjoying the gospel of God's grace to lead us along as well. None of us can go through the Christian experience with no leadership, with no guidance. We all need some level of accountability. Now, a lot of pastors, particularly in more conservative contexts, are great at saying, become like me. And they stop there. Become like me. Do what I do. I'm moral. I'm good. You have to look at me and become just like me. But they never actually engage with their people. And as we say, get their fingers in the wool of the sheep and begin to smell like sheep too because we are. A lot of pastors will operate that way. Be careful when you come across someone like that. And yes, I recognize that I'm presently being evaluated. You ain't been to my house. Okay. You can still buy me lunch or buy me coffee anytime you want. I'm totally down with that. But there's another group of pastors that are frequently in more liberal contexts that say, oh, I have become like you. No, no, don't, 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 don't look at me. Don't try to be like me. Don't, don't. I have become like you. I'm just, a, I'm just a no good, dirty, rotten worm, sinner saved by grace. I'm just like you. I'm no different, which is of no real value at all. 
God has always accomplished his purpose through people. Hear that. God did not need Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, but he has always accomplished his purpose through people. What we want is pastors, elders, deacons, volunteer ministry leaders in the children's department and our students who say, I have become like you, become like me. It's both and. We need someone who loves us enough to encourage us and guide us with specificity and precision. But we also need someone who loves us enough to tell us hard truths. I can tell you with complete candor that the guys that serve on staff with me, Matt McGill, Josh Modisette, and Mike Hall, tell me hard things regularly. Not because they're jerks, because they love me. And the elders with whom I serve tell me hard things regularly, not because they're overbearing, domineering guys. No, because they love me and they love this church. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We all need someone to tell us hard things. And by the way, let me slip one more thing in here since we're talking about pastors. Many of us have become enamored with the audible voice of a pastor over a speaker. And we think that's our pastor. On a podcast, on a radio show, on an audio book, whatever it might be. And let me, let me say this. That's great that we hear those things. But those things, those, those people are not loving us, leading us, guiding us, or guarding us. They don't know us. Those are well-rehearsed, edited, modified, brushed messages that are marvelous, but that cannot be your only dose of Christian leadership, of pastoring, of eldering, of deaconing. It cannot be. It is not enough. Those people don't know you to encourage you. Those people don't know you to tell you hard things. And so we get the opportunity to come to church and be available and in a sense exposed to people under shepherds that God has put in place to love us, lead us, guide us, and guard us. We need people who love us enough to help us identify the idols that have set up shop in our blind spots and that are robbing and killing our joy. These are people, your elders, your deacons, your staff, other volunteer ministry leaders who have given their hearts to you, the people. And when you suffer, when you're miserable and joyless, man, so are we. And so would you let us have that relationship with you? Practicing a pattern of performance is idolatry. Ah, but the good news about this passage, it's right there. It's right there when Paul talks about Christ being formed in you. The good news is that we have a high priest in Jesus Christ. He became as we are, and he invites us to become as he is, don't you see? He became human, experiencing every temptation that we've ever experienced and more because he never gave in. And he invites us to be holy just as he is holy. In fact, God the Father himself chooses to see me and you, if you are a believer, as if you had the same level of holiness that Jesus himself does. He is the great and perfect pastor. He is the ultimate prime minister of the kingdom of God. He is the one who is able to ultimately obliterate our idols because he is stronger. He is more beautiful to behold than any of the other good things in our lives. He is the best thing, and he's never ornery. He's always good all the time. All the things that we do when we come into a worship service is to hold up Jesus as more beautiful, as more believable, so that all of us will walk out of this room not thinking about me or Matt or even the coffee on the first floor, but we will behold Jesus. 
We will turn our eyes upon him and we will remember with affection he is the shatterer of all of my bonds, all of my chains. I no longer have to be about any sort of pattern of performance. I am free. I am free indeed because of this Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, I just want to remind you of what I said at the beginning. There are only two religions in the world there only ever have been. One is about what you have to do. The other is about what has been done for you. And let me just say with the authority and the punch of the Holy Scripture, God's word behind me, if you are in any way, shape, or form adhering to the first religion that I described that is completely dependent on your efforts, you are lost. And you will not ever achieve right standing before God, which is the thing that you need most. But we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the demands of God's moral code of righteousness, and he offers it to me as a completed scorecard. He also paid the wages of my sin, which is death, so that I will never have to. We believe that. That is the only other kind of religion that there is. The organizing narrative of my life is that I don't have to practice any pattern of performance. Jesus has done it. And I encourage you, I invite you to believe that. For the rest of you, you've been not going to hell for a long time, perhaps. But you are not characterized by joyfulness. You are known in your family and as your community as someone who's not going to hell, but is utterly joyless in this life. And let me just say to you, you are of no value in your home or in this community. So I invite you to repent, to rethink your thinking, to be free from a pattern of performance and to simply realize what God has done for you freely and that we would then be known as a people who are walking around with the joy of Jesus, not goofy, weird Pollyanna-ish, but who are never seen trying to achieve or accomplish the good things. We have received the best thing. And for the rest of you, that you get it, and I know who you are, that you get it, and when I'm with you, I'm better. When I'm with you, I have joy. You have a spiritual gravity that draws me in. Yes, 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 you have my heart, the heart of the leadership of this church. Please continue on. I encourage you, I exhort you to go forth in joy. May Christ be our joy. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, not for what we have to do. Father, we thank you that you have given freely the finished work of your son, Jesus. Father, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that is still living their life according to the narrative of what they have to get done to have everlasting life and right standing before you, I pray, God, that you will shatter those chains, that you will give them the gift of belief that the penny will drop. I pray that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge experiential knowledge of your son Jesus and they will release be untethered for the rest of us father would you also remind us that it is not merely about escaping hell and one day going to heaven but now to be the people who are characterized by joy would you free us all over again from practicing a pattern of performance and knocking over our idols would you reveal them to us Lord God Father, for all of those that are here that are characterized by joy, thank you for their lives. Thank you for your spirit in them, the hope of glory. 
I pray, God, that they will be encouraged by this morning and they will continue on and they themselves will be in a position of leadership to love and lead and guide and guard others. May it be exactly as I have prayed or even better. May all of those gathered, Father, hear a better sermon than the one that was preached because you, Lord Jesus, are our pastor and you love us. Thank you for becoming as we were and inviting us to become as you are. We love you, God, because you loved us first. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.